Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Founder Hour podcast. This is your co-host, Posh. We've got a new episode for you today and we're excited that you made it here. Before we get going, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, give us a five-star rating, and then subscribe to the newsletter. Get some new updates from us, some exclusive content, things that nobody else has. And oh, one more thing. Enjoy the show. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? This is the Founder Hour Podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat. And on today's episode, we had the pleasure of sitting down with Damon John. Damon is the founder of FUBU, a hip-hop apparel company and pioneer of the streetwear industry that he started in 1992 with his three friends from Queens, New York. He's also the star of ABC's Shark Tank, where he spent the last 11 years investing in and advising countless startups and entrepreneurs. We talked about everything from Damon's childhood and what he was like as a kid, some of his formative experiences and entrepreneurial ventures that shaped who he is today, the origin story of FUBU along with its successes and failures, how he ended up on Shark Tank and what most people may not know about the show, and much, much more. Here we go. Damon, I was going to wear my Dodgers hat, but I figured you're going to be in that New York hat, and I didn't want to piss you off from the get-go. Yeah, no, I, I hate when people that um <laughs> look at the most winningest team in history, they try to actually compare it. It, it does piss me off. It gets me angry. <laughs> I mean, at least they were originally from Brooklyn, right? There's, there's got to be there's some oh, connection there. See, see, now you got to even dig deeper in a hole, you know, and just play yourself, you know? It's like... It's like fighting Mike Tyson and saying, at least I spit on you in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, so um, I know you've been on several podcasts before and, and sort of have shared your story, but we always like to kind of talk about the early days because it's just super important and sets context for sort of where you're at in your life now. And obviously people can Google you and, and watch you on TV and, and know what you kind of do. Um, but kind of taking it back, you know, I know you grew up in or you were born in Brooklyn. Um, tell us kind of a little bit about what you were like as a kid. What kind of things were you into? What did you sort of spend your time doing? Well, well, you know, listen, it all depends on when you're talking about my, in my childhood, I was born, born in Brooklyn and moved to Queens and at, uh, you know, earlier on in my, in my life, uh, you know, going up to around 11 or 12 years old, I was into airplanes and cars and skateboarding and I, I, I loved baseball. I wanted to, you know maybe be a baseball player one day. Um, those are things I liked. Uh, the music I liked was mixed. You know, at that time, there wasn't hip-hop. And so you listen to everybody from the OJs to the BGs to, you know, Elton John and, and, and all those groups out there and the police and things of that nature. And then all of a sudden, um, you know, hip-hop was born. And hip-hop just, uh, it really just mesmerized me. And um, of course, you know, the Sugar Hill Gang came out and other, you know, Africa Bambata and uh, Grandmaster Flash, but then slowly it moved over into Queens because all that started in the Bronx. And um, it happened to move into Queens. You know, they say, and I hate the, I hate the saying, but it is somewhat true, um, that pioneers get uh, slaughtered and settlers prosper. And uh, the bigger rappers ended up being 
some people who lived in my neighborhood and, and run DMC and LL Cool J and Salt and Pepper and um and I, I happened to just grow up in a neighborhood where in, in five square miles, literally at the time of uh, that that height of rap, probably about fifty percent or sixty percent of the most famous rappers in the world came from that area, and it was just an amazing time to to grow up at that point. And uh, and you know, listen, you know, my parents had got divorced when I was ten years old, and my father would leave, and I would never speak to him or see him ever again. And I became the man of the house, and simultaneously, why I loved rap, I was trying to support my mother. Not that I had to, not that I was technically the man in the house bringing in the money. She was, but I hate seeing her work so many jobs, and I tried to contribute in any way I could. I was not a good student in school, um, but I was also very popular when I started going to high school because I started going those early rap tours. Like the first large rap tour that went around the country, I was actually I would show up on certain dates. Uh, I didn't work for the tour, but I would get on a train, bus, or a car and, and get over there. Um, and I was a really popular kid, which was probably to my demise because um, uh, because I wasn't doing that great in school because I was dyslexic, um, I decided not to take uh, further forms of education. And then I'd blink my eyes and I'd be 23 years old or 22 years old. I'd already had a bunch of failed little businesses. I didn't know much about business. And those kids that I was laughing at, I called them at that time nerds and ducks. They were coming back from college and I was serving them shrimp and red lobster and I was embarrassed. Um, and around that time, I decided to change my life and continue to educate myself whatever way I could and apply myself to a, this little idea I had called FUBU. And, and before we get into FUBU, um, you know, I, I can imagine there are a lot of kids that maybe are now in that situation or were in, in your situation where you just sort of get caught up in the life of like, you know, being a high school student. And again, like if you're not perhaps, um, you know, as good in school or, or you have that kind of path laid out for you to go to college and you have all these plans, then it's kind of like, well, what do I do? You know, and, and you sort of end up, like you said, you could end up at Red Lobster or you could end up at this department store or here or where just, just, you know, to get a job and get experience. But for you, did you, did you have, I mean, at that point before you even, you know, decided I'm going to change my life. Um, did you have a vision of what you thought your adult life was going to look like and what you would do for the rest of your life or career or, or you weren't really thinking that far ahead? You know, I was thinking that far ahead, but you know, I was again, egotistical and I was young and I was, I, I, I can't say that I was book smart, but I had some level of intelligence and I would think that I'd be rich or I would be some kind of business owner. I really thought I would. So I would open up little businesses like buying crash cars and putting them together and selling them. But I didn't have any plan. I just was running and shooting without any knowledge. I was just generally going down the path, just like most entrepreneurs do, who uh, eventually end up failing. Um, and I wish I had a more of a calculated plan. So I would start businesses, like I said, crash car business. I would buy a crash car for five. I believe if I put $5,000 into it of parts, I could sell it for 15. I did the math. It was extremely, it, this, this math was extremely simple. 17 years old, if I ended up buying one, and by the time I keep doubling down, I'd be a millionaire by 18. So that was a simple math. That was it. That's how it was going to work. And then all of a sudden, reality set in, and I had zero money, um, and uh, I had no car. So then all of a sudden, I decided to run a transportation service, almost kind of like a, a, a lift, but for uh, a van, 15-passenger van, where people would hop on and hop off on the bus route. But I had a crappy van. Um, and, uh, when you get a ticket by the department of transportation, you can make $200 a day doing that van route or two fifty. 
But by the time you pay for maintenance on the van, insurance, um, and if you get a ticket because you're you're going up a route where the Department of Transportation says you don't have commercial or livery plates, one ticket was twenty five hundred dollars. One ticket was ten days of work. If you had was grossing and being able to keep all of that gross, meaning the whole net, so it was really one ticket was about thirty days of work. And so that business failed as well, because why didn't I just go get livery plates and actually be a legal, uh, a legal <laughs> right. one and, and finance a van? And but, you know, that, that, that's the kind of the learning process. Damon, looking back, uh, you talk about your parents getting divorced when you were 10 years old and you started working at such a young age. I mean, you've been working literally most of your life at this point. Uh, when you think about you know, that time of your life, um, you know, what was going through your head? I mean, was it just, we're in survival mode, I need to do whatever it takes? Or was it one of those things where you told yourself, it's only up from here, right? I'm going to do whatever it takes to be extremely successful. So there was no extremely successful um, and it wasn't whatever it takes because uh, the story of my story is at the same time when hip hop was absolutely uh, starting to dominate, it's the same time that crack came into neighborhoods. And most of my friends, the, the, the entrepreneurs that we would see that look like us would be drug dealers. Right? You, didn't, you didn't see the parents. You didn't see the hardworking people because they were at work. They would get up early at 5 o'clock in the morning and come home at 8 o'clock. You wouldn't see them, but you saw the drug dealers outside of school. So um, it was not whatever it takes. Um, what it was initially was since my mother worked that hard and I knew the hardships that we didn't have gas or electricity, but I needed to buy a brand new pair of suede Pumas or I wanted to buy a leather blazer to look like Run DMC, how was I going to get it? Well, responsibility is mo a, a lot of kids, you know, grow up. Well, my parents get it for me. Well, my mother couldn't afford it. So initially it was to not be a burden and as well as to look fly, to be able to get the things I want. That was the initial way. Um, and I was too young to really get an official job. So I could not leave it in the hands of becoming employed. Maybe I'd get a summer camp, uh, you know, job as a, as, a, as a counselor. Maybe I'd get the summer to clean up the parks. but man, what am I going to do all the other months besides the summer? So it was more about getting what I needed at the moment, immediate gratification. Um, and I, I would take it from there after that. Mm -hmm. And and obviously this sort of entrepreneurship, the word and the concept and everything has evolved so much. And also it's it's become a lot more popular, I would say, in the last maybe like 15 years. But back then, I, I, can't, I can't imagine it was as common for people to just sort of drop everything and start a business from scratch. And perhaps if you had the means, uh, it would be a bit easier. But for someone like you, like what did you, how did you even come across the thought of, I'm just going to go and start my own thing. I'm not even going to go work somewhere. And how, how did you decide to, to start a clothing brand or at least in the, at you the know, time what it was? In reality, in most cultures, entrepreneurship has obviously been around since the, the, the first day that we've existed, but you just mm -hmm. called it hustling or you called it bartering or you called it whatever it is. And especially cultures and, and or people, you know, my, my, my father's from Trinidad. Half my parents are are from India, my grandparents and my family and my other parent, my other, obviously my mother are African-Americans and, um, you know, 
Caribbean people, African-Americans, we always were in generally the service industry in some sense selling something, right? We didn't make it because generally it came from people who could make something, meaning, you know, we would buy goods and bring them in. So, so that was always around. However, there was never a formalization of the word entrepreneurship. It was all either either you got a night hustle, you got a day hustle, you work at a store, you work someplace here, but you, you tailor clothes or on the weekend, you'll be at the flea market and you, you sell your little pies or whatever. Or the theory of an entrepreneur, a technical entrepreneur, is kind of like the person who comes and sets your house on fire and then comes you to sell you a water hose to put it out because you always felt like it was this person who was hustling you and they had everything all kind of figured out, these lines and their delivery. And you were like, what's going on here? And you realize you got got by somebody. So it was never like, I'm going to be my own business owner. And you have to think about it. You know, when you grew up in my community or any community as a person of color, we didn't see on TV people of color that were entrepreneurs. Uh, there were two people on color that were entrepreneurs of, of on TV of color that were entrepreneurs. And uh, number one was Fred G. Sanford, the junk man. It didn't look like he was doing that well. So obviously you didn't <laughs> want to be like him. But the other one was somebody who was a little kind of past your theory way of thinking. And name was George Jefferson. Didn't George Jefferson have like a cleaners or something? And how did he live on Fifth Avenue moving on up with the cleaners? Maybe, you know, I still don't even know people I own with cleaners uh, can do that. But there, but but we were probably thinking he probably had a massive one if you really think about the way it is. But again, it wasn't something that you really embraced as um, as a business. So, Damon, you know, both Pat and I come from uh, an Armenian background. So very similar, you know, our parents have always kind of raised us with like, you know, you have to go out and earn, you know, what you're going to eat, right? You got to go hunt what you're going to eat. And it's always been that way, right? They've naturally been business owners and entrepreneurs, but they, they haven't necessarily been successful or they necessarily haven't made it to the millionaire, billionaire status. They're still working hard. They're still hustling, you know, for, you know, we, we created this show that, so that folks that are listening to us can get inspired and be you know, can find a relatability factor with the founders like yourself. So for those that are out there that are in the minority communities that, you know, have seen hustle and hard work, you know, how do you go above and beyond that and start to scale, right? How do you go from just doing something and selling something to almost institutionalizing it or almost making it something bigger than it really can become, right? And you're someone that has done that multiple times. So I'm really curious from your point of view, how folks like us can take it to the next level. Yeah. So it is, you know, there's only two things you're ever going to be in control of in your life, right? It is the perception or the lens that you look at something through, and then it's going to be the actions you take. Those are the only two things that you are in charge of in your life. And, um, it, it, I was always a dream big person. I was always a person that, uh, you know, anything worth doing is worth overdoing. And a lot of entrepreneurs don't realize that there's a couple of key components to be an entrepreneur. First of all, you have to be a little bit vulnerable. You have to be walking in the rooms and learning, right? You have to know also that this thing is a team sport. And third is, you know, you're not the end all be all. You're the last person that really uh, ever benefits off of entrepreneurship. You have to empower whether it's the people that work for you whether it's your strategic partner and definitely your customer. You know, so if people think about entrepreneurship as I got to go work in the business every day. Well, they're thinking about it the wrong way. They got to work on the business every day. Right. And you're 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 
your cash register needs to be ringing when your head is on the pillow. And if you don't get to see other people that have made it to that point, well, you don't understand that, right? Because the next step after that is, you know, a, a, a lot of entrepreneurs, they get to a certain point, they're doing well. Well, now I got to open new businesses. No, you don't. You got to invest in new businesses, in other businesses. Or maybe your money will work for you because you need to have financial intelligence. Every day you are making a dollar, making a dollar, profiting a dollar, profiting a dollar. And you figured, well, I know so much about my business. And the reason why I am, you know, uh, I got a good business. I'm, I'm making $400,000 a year at home. I don't need anybody else to talk to me about it. Well, maybe you need to understand again. Maybe there's a financial advisor who knows how to put your money to work. But a lot of time we believe that the only way that we are supposed to profit is the hard sweat that we put in. Right. And you have to keep expanding your mind of saying, maybe I get to and maybe you don't even need to be an entrepreneur. You know, there was a there was a man who passed away. And, I, you know, I remember Tony Robbins telling the story. The man, uh, he was he was born um, uh, yeah, probably about. Uh, 1918, I think the man died probably around 1995. Uh, he was a son of a slave. The highest paying job he ever had was $30,000 a year uh, when he had finally gotten to UPS. But he put it by the time he died, he left $70 million to his family due to the stocks that he bought at an early age. Right. Mm. So you got to have the mentality of who am I going to get to empower and work for me? Right now, I can't tell you how many billionaires work for me, and they work for me every single day, and they bust their butt. And some of them are even dead. Their names are Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, uh, Jeff Bezos. So you, when you have the mentality and knowing that this is bigger than what you're doing, I don't care if you are uh, selling vegetables. At some point, somebody decided to become the goddamn Jolly Green Giant. So, you know, I don't care what you're selling. There is a way to make it a global product brand. And you're going to put the same amount of work in, too. The same exact. You only have 24 hours in a day. You're going to put the same amount of work in. It's just you're not deciding to call the right people, make the right offers, share this amount with somebody else, another distributor, another whatever. And it's just the thought process that keeps them stuck. Mm, right. So um, I guess when it comes to actually, if you want to, if if you do have something you're passionate about or a business idea, you see an opportunity and you start it, obviously that comes with, you know, getting everyone on the same page, getting other people to share that in that vision and work with you and, and, and kind of make that a reality. Obviously you can't do everything yourself, right? You have to put, you have to hire the right people and bring on the right team. And you mentioned it's a team sport and it all comes down to the overall vision and what you're communicating to that team. So for you, when you were just starting FUBU, what, what did you see? What was the opportunity? What did you, what were you so like, you know, passionate about or, or, or wanting to go after where you, you decided, all right, I'm going to start this. And, and what was that? Well, I made a couple of dollars, but after that, you know what it was to me and to my team? You want to get onto the video set and meet all the hot chicks and not get kicked off? All right. Well, here's a reason why you can go to the video set because now you have the product and you are making it. Uh, the director uh, uh, doesn't have to pay for it. You made the stylist job easier. The rapper is looking good. And even if you sit around all day, at least when they kick everybody off, you have a reason to be there and you would have paid to be over there. I always say that to me and my three partners. And you know what happened? Out of 20 video sets we went to, 
Um, we didn't get our product into probably about 15 of them. But the five we did, but forget even the five we did. You know how many how many people we met and, and got to find out where the next video was? Because, you know, listen, crews work on various different videos. Bodyguards would be like, here. They're like, oh, we're not doing one. But guess what? Bobby Brown's doing one next week. We're not doing So we ended up getting our product on Method Man, on Mrs. Jones, on Brand Nubian, on Buster Rhymes, and on Old Dirty Bastard and Mariah Carey. And that was out of us going to all those videos over three years. So simultaneously, we were very connected with the industry by that time. And at the same time, we were, it was the same, same 10 t-shirts. Now all of a sudden our product is out there and we would have done that for free anyway. It's almost like somebody saying, you want to go to the club and get paid or you want to go to a club and have a reason to be there. So when entrepreneurs are doing something they absolutely love, they want to be in that environment. They want to be there. And you know what? If, if all of a sudden FUBU never took off and I ended up becoming a waiter the rest of my life, that probably would have been one of the best times of my life, being on those video sets, because that was something that I was into. Then why did you start FUBU? I mean, and, and how did you start FUBU? You, you weren't some guy that was in the fashion industry. Um, I'm sure you were a part of that culture. You loved the culture. But what made you believe that you were the right person, right? This concept of like, and I guess this is a concept we talk about more now is like founder product fit, right? Forget product market, but like, why was Damon John in the best position to start FUBU? I wasn't. I was a true entrepreneur that took affordable steps. So I started it because I believe that the clothing brands that uh, that we were buying didn't respect or didn't value us. And I didn't like to feel like that. And I was ashamed of wearing them, even though I knew that that's the only place I'm going to get a champion sweatshirt. And that's, uh, you know, Timberland only looks this way or whatever the case is. So I still want people to feel like I'm fly, but I also don't, I hate this, these people for the way that they're treating us. So at first I just went and bought all champion goods, all that. And I, I think I spent like a thousand dollars on a bunch of taffeta labels. And I just covered up every single thing I had with this little FUBU label. And I wore it for about a year or something. And people would be like, yo, man, what's that? I'm like, oh, man, these some cool dudes I know. You know, they got some stuff, you know, I'm rocking, you know. And um, um, it was just a, a feeling of trying to belong, to look this certain way, but yet not feel bad because I'm highlighting somebody that hates us. Right. So that's where it initially started. And then it was the... I want to I want to buy this hat. I can't find this hat. Let me sew a bunch of these hats like this. And then I actually started making money. And then I started really saying, wait a minute. I'm making the stuff that I want to wear. <clears throat> I'm getting attention. I'm feeling like I'm worth something. I can't rap, can't sing, you know, so let me do this. So it, it's always that kind of you keep growing and, 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 and you keep growing and seeing and going and going and going. You start to grow. I didn't think of myself as a huge entrepreneur. And when I did think that I was going to have a business, I thought that I would have a, a, a nice uh, boutique for my three partners and I to work out of. And we would all be able to hopefully make enough money to feed our families with this one boutique. And then we'd grow it to four where each one of us operated one of the boutiques. Damon, one thing I want to highlight, and I, I really appreciate when I see and know when founders did this was early on when FUBU began, you didn't go 100% all in on FUBU you still had another job that was bringing you money. I think these days, a lot of times you hear investors and venture capitalists and other founders, oh, you have to go 100% in on whatever you're doing or else it's not going to work. You know, you have to be 100% focused. But then you hear all these stories of successful people that had to get their bills paid somehow or else that other business, that other side hustle was never going to move forward. What is your take on that? 
you know, for the folks out there that are listening that have an idea or that are just starting off and should they keep their daytime job or should they go 100% in on whatever they're doing? Yeah, listen, the 100% go 100% in and, you know, do all this and that is the biggest crock of shit I've ever heard in my life. I don't know why people even talk about doing that. But you know what? If you want to if you want to lose weight, don't eat for two weeks. I mean, how does that sound? It's it's just stupid. I have no idea when people say that. The people who have said that type of thing it generally are the people who may be referring to um, you built up a good amount of money or whatever the case is. You worked in a career where you've been rewarded for it and you have opportunities of retiring or going someplace else, but you've decided to take 10 or 20% of what you have and go all in on something. But even that thing that you're going all in on, you at least have a strategy that in a year or two years, if you don't hit certain mile markers, maybe it's not for you. Now, that's okay. Cool. But I believe that you should always be slowly dipping your toe in it. Uh, yes, I worked at Red Lobster for five years while I did FUBU. And um, 80% of my time was at Red Lobster, 20% of my time was at FUBU, and then it increased to 30 and 70, 50, 50. And then I realized I was on to something. I would have never been able to survive if I would have quit my job and do all those things because how was I going to pay the bills? And and by the way, simultaneously, I, you know, the story goes that I turned my house into a factory, but I had three other rooms in my house. I rented those out to strangers for $50 a week. So that now I had the mortgage generally paid. I was sleeping in the basement or sleeping next to the sewing machines. And then I was going to Red Lobster to work. And that's what happened. And I was literally sleeping three hours a day for five days a week. Now, that's how the story goes, because I was trying to make sure I maximized my opportunity. So I had I had the ability to fail a dozen times during that and come back because at least I had my bases covered. Entrepreneurs, I don't care who yep. they are. They think the same way. People who are real estate giants now are like, hey, I bought a two-family home so that I can rent it out to one family, even though my family was 10 people and we stayed in the bottom part or the top part. And they paid the bills for us. So I had more time to start investing. I doubled and doubled and doubled and tripled. That's how it is. That's the real way it works. And really to that point, I think what it really comes down to is the conviction, right? Like that initially, you know, the hundred percent thing, like you might not be a hundred percent working on the business at the, at the beginning, but your conviction, like you're, you might be a hundred percent obsessing about it and you know, you're going to do it. And once the time is right, you're going to take the leap and you're going to go all in on, on your time. But that conviction piece is important, especially when it comes to failure, right? And it comes to the inevitable struggles of starting a business. And I know for you, I think I've read or heard that, you know, you kind of had to shut down FUBU a couple of times and bring it back. And that must be really difficult to do because opportunity costs start coming in your mind of like, well, what else could I be doing right now? Could I be doing something better, something more lucrative? Like something about it kept drawing you in, kept, kept telling you like, no, Damon, like stick to this. Like if, even if it doesn't work, fucking close it down, figure out a better strategy and come back. Right. Like what, what was going through your mind? I guess talk to us about those early times. So the key component to that are two things. I was taking affordable steps though. You see, when I was closing it down, I ran out of a thousand, two thousand dollars. I was able to bounce back from it. Now, a lot of entrepreneurs who have that idea of, you know, go all in, uh, you know, they go and, and a lot of founders, the, 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 the main reason that, uh, uh, startups fail is usually overfunding. And overfunding is exactly what we're talking about. They go and borrow $100,000 and quit their job, $200,000. And now they all of a sudden, instead of making mistakes with small things, they, well, 
They took out $20,000 in ads. They got $100,000 in inventory. You know, all these fancy consultants and salespeople, instead of failing with $500, $5,000, you would have got the same result. Uh, you know, you know, money a lot of times highlights your weaknesses. If you have uh, inferior inventory or inferior product, well, uh, you know, if, if you got 20 of those pieces that are inferior, well, what do you think a thousand of them are going to do? They're going to be a thousand inf inferior pieces. If your social media conversion rate is 2% or 1%, well, then putting more ads out are not, it's not going to make any difference. It's a, it's a very small conversion rate. So I was able to bounce back and I was frustrated, but on the flip side, I had told you about two or three other businesses that I started before that. This time, it just felt different. This time, it didn't feel as much like work, and I was excited to start it again. I wouldn't have started those crash car business or van business or any other business again because it felt like work. It felt like hell. But this time, I wanted to start it up. It's kind of like I want, I want that feeling again. And it's, a, it's, it's and that's the whole theory of you doing something you love. You never work a day in your life. Right, exactly. And to that, people think it's like a cliche of doing something you love. And people say it all the time. But it's so important because that's what gets you through that hump. That's what gets you over those tough periods. Because we always talk about it. Like if you're just starting a business, which a lot of people do, myself included, I've done this too. Starting a business uh, for the sake of just starting a business. Like you see an opportunity. It's not necessarily like a passion of yours. But hey, there's a money money making opportunity. And sure, that could be fine too. But at some point, once you need to level up and scale up and manage people and hire people and what have you and like really grow it, that kind of kicks in is like, ah, like, do I really care as much about this business as I, as I should? Like, no, like, well, maybe I should do something different. Maybe I should do something. So initially, if it's like, I guess, what, what advice would you give to people who are in that position? And maybe it's not a passion, but also passion can be developed. So you just never know, you know, it's like. How do you how do you approach that? How do you approach that piece? Yeah, two pe two type of people fall into that framework of what you're thinking about. Like, oh, if it's just a good idea, so uh, you know, and I and I and I, I want to make money of it. Those are the people that don't have any kind of. Usually, they don't have money and and or or uh, and they don't have enough information to realize you know if it's a good business for them because they don't have enough experience to know that. You can like a business all you want, or you can like an idea all you want. It does not mean you like the business. And you know where you see this often? Restaurant owners. Restaurant owners who love eating. They love certain types of food or restaurant people who invest in restaurants. But you then realize once you invest in the restaurant business, now you got to deal with inventory. Now you got to deal with real estate. Now, now you're, you're done eating. You're done seeing that part. So you should probably be a chef or a food critic, totally different in industry, and you can and you can be the best at that. But the day you open a restaurant, you are doing something totally different. So, what component of the business do you like? You know, that's that's the issue. I love the marketing aspect, and I love the inclusion of me being in hip hop. I love the empowerment of others saying, "Wow, look at this! The quality of where it came from." If I love manufacturing, no, I don't love sitting in a sewing machine. I don't love being in a warehouse. Can I design? Is FUBU the greatest design brand ever? I don't want to break it to anybody, but it's really easy to put a bunch of O5s and FBs on a bunch of sweatshirts and uh, jerseys. It's not hard doing that, <laughs> but I love the marketing aspect. I love the branding aspect. And I love being part of the hip-hop community, and I love seeing those things unfold. Damon... When did you know that 
FUBU was going to become this global brand, right? Like, I know you talk about you had this feeling that it was different this time around. It was going to be successful. But was there a moment or perhaps moments that you saw and said, shit, FUBU is going to become something way bigger than I ever thought it's going to be? Um, it wasn't that I said FUBU was going to be. I turned around one day and said FUBU is something that I never thought it would be. Um, because, you know, it, to be a little bit, uh, have a healthy paranoia, and if you really do your analytics, a hot fashion brand lasts two to five, uh, five to seven years, um, and it's gone. Uh, or it falls out of favor. Lee's, Levi's, you know, Benetton, Alesse, Fila, all of us, right? There's, you got your unicorns like Louis Vuitton and uh, and uh, Nike. Um, but every milestone is a different milestone. It's like, wow, we went from shirts to, you know, to to denim. Wow, we went from five stores into 50 stores. Wait a minute, we have a, we have a ladies licensee coming around. Wait a minute, the test of the person who wanted to distribute us in Germany went well because simultaneously why those are happening, there are some back steps. Germany went well, but the guy in London is not really buying a lot of goods. Maybe the people in London aren't ready for us. Um, the hats and the jeans went well, but the coats we tried ourselves, man, they came and it was, it was a bad deal or the licenses, you know, the ladies one is working, but the pocketbooks aren't. So you're getting this good and bad news every day, right? Then all of a sudden you turn around and, well, I did, I, I turned around and reflected and I said, wait a minute, I'm in 50 countries and we're doing an average of about, that time we were climbing and we we're doing about $200 million a year. And I said, and it looks like we're going to do more. Holy crap. You know what I mean? Um, and I looked at my bank account and I said, what the hell is that? You know, so um, I think it was at a certain time where if you have this healthy paranoia, it, you know, it's like anybody when you're when your nose is on the grind and you're and you, you when you take a minute to look up sometimes when you're climbing a mountain, it's not often that when you look up and you look at how far you got to go, that minute you turn back and see how far you've come is the minute you go. All right. Well, I can still keep going. And there are obviously many businesses and obviously fashion and apparel is included in this category is, you know, it's it's tough for it to sort of you know stand the test of time as the world changes so much and as culture changes so much and we've seen so many brands come and go um but why do you think fubu has sort of stayed and stayed in you know kind of ingrained in that culture as it's shifted as it's changed as new generations have come along and adopt, adopted new brands and new you know new sexier brand new flashy things that everyone's kind of you know kind of after like what what is it that you think about fubu or the way you sort of built it that has allowed for that you know i think fubu uh, the brand the the brand the ip the name is bigger than the business you know by far it is nowhere near where it used to be um and we can go into various reasons on why that happens with other brands but you know people like to sum it up as the first hashtag of clothing um, and I think as it, it meant something bigger than what it was, and it still does, it means that we are serving a culture or we are serving our own, whoever it is, right? And it has been adopted in so many different areas from LGBTQ. They say something is FUBU, you know, uh, uh, or they say wh whatever the case is. So um, it, it is a lifestyle, you know, and, and you know, so you look at um, things that many brands never get to the the form of a lifestyle. There's four stages of anything, right? It is um, item, label, brand, and lifestyle, right? So you look at soda, we can get it anywhere, right? And that's fine. You look at it, 
when you go to a store and it has a label on it, well, you realize somebody has identified it, but you're not necessarily uh, aware of that identification. You haven't been exposed to it 20 times or more. Then you look at it as a brand and you go, all right, what kind of soda is it? Is it Pepsi? Is it, I know the soda. And then you do have some lifestyle brands that will be called Coca-Cola. Somebody will tell you, go get me a Coke. They mean the soda generally, right? And, and that, that, we're fortunate enough for that to have happened in FUBU in a different way where they say, well, that's FUBU, you know, whatever it is. Right. Um, and I think that is the most that that's the reason why we've enjoyed the the recognition globally. Um, but again, the business itself and that, that is that is due to us and due to change uh, uh, has has dramatically changed. And we know that the investment of FUBU will come back around in the any time that we decide to fire it up. And actually right now, I guess, because of the political and social climate, as well as people loving the the, the the late 90s and early 2000, we're getting a lot of inquiries about the brand, uh, you know, and we're, we're doing we're doing we're doing pretty well now. Damon, I remember when I was a kid, my mom used to drag me to Macy's. Right. And as a young, you know, you're a young boy and, you know, mom's shopping in like, you know, her section and you're just like, what am I doing here? Uh, and I always used to go to the men's boys section. I remember, I, I clearly and distinctly remember FUBU always being one of those brands there, right? And speaking of Macy's, I remember, and I'm really curious about this. When I first read about it, I was like, I got to ask Damon, you know, when you were trying to fulfill, you know, one of these orders, I think it was in the early 90s. I don't remember exactly uh, what year it was. You got turned down several dozen times by different banks, right? Was this something that was a commonality back then? Um, was it because you were a black founder? And how has that changed, if, if so, throughout the last 25, 30 years? So a lot to unpack there. there uh, it, it is still an issue with black founders and people of color to, uh, you know, get the proper, um, you know, things from the bank. I mean, the, this goes back to uh, systemic issues, you know, from uh, credit ratings and from, you know, where you live, you know, and um, the banks that are accessible to you and the rates they charge you and various other things. So a lot of that is systemic. Um, also, um, you know, in in certain communities, they don't trust financial institutions for various different reasons. Um, it's obvious reasons on one end and some other ends, it's ignorance. You, the bank holds your money back and you believe that um, they're part of the government. But no, you didn't pay your taxes. That's what happened. You didn't pay those taxes. And um, we've also seen in some of the bigger um, issues that maybe had happened in 08 where banks were taking care of not just marginalized people, everybody, they were, they were taking advantage yeah. of um, but also on the flip side, um, you know, we have to take responsibility for some of this stuff. I didn't have financial intelligence, so I didn't present it in the right way that a bank should be able to uh, give me um, the the proper resources. Also, um, we're not taught financial intelligence in school, no matter what color you are, yep. right? So how do you understand if you are don't aren't, aren't taught this stuff in school? How do you understand what interest is, compounding interest, and or you know, uh, P&Ls are and various other things. And unfortunately, for those of color, we generally have not had anybody in our life that came from legacy wealth. So there was not granddad or grandmom or somebody like that who owned the business for 50 years to pass down the information to us over the years for us to be a little more prepared. So there are a lot of things that uh, are uh, against us in the system, but also uh, whether it be due to history or society or ourselves not going out and getting educated, 
Um, it's not one thing you can point at. Yeah, definitely. And and we we uh, we were always talking about this kind of stuff too. Is like that early exposure that you get as a kid and how much of an impact it has on just what you end up doing with your life and your career and how important that is. Um, so. I know. I mean, with this in this day and age, with sort of all this innovation and technology, hopefully that's something that we we can improve on as a, as a society. Um, but so, kind of to fast forward, uh, I think it's like two thousand nine ish. You get a call from Mark Burnett um, at ABC for this new show called Shark Tank. Um, how did how did that like? Was that a random call, or did you like end up? Did you like want to? You know, did you find out about it and want to audition for it and you know try to get involved and like what was kind of that? Uh, period like for you yeah i think the call was 2007 or 2008 hmm. 2007 maybe 2007 actually i go to my office and at that time you know people were still heavily calling the office and um, my secretary check it checks my uh, voicemail and out of the 50 voicemails i have on my recordings on the machine usually 45 of them were people trying to sell me um uh, new locations for my office or stores or people trying to handle my money. But one was from Mark Burnett's company and said, we want to talk to you. I get on a, I get on a conference call uh, or a zoom and, and they say they want to talk to me about a new show they're doing. That's already number one in Japan, London, and Canada called uh, dragons. Then they're going to call a shark tank and they want me on the show. I said, okay. Um, they said, we're going to have to spend our, I'm going to have to spend my own money. I said, click, hung up the phone. Goodbye. That's it. I said, these people are pimps. That's it. I mean, that's it. I heard Hollywood takes advantage of you. I'm like, God damn, they're going to make me spend my own money? What the hell is wrong with these people? This What did that mean, though? Like, if you wanted to invest, you had to invest your own money? Was that or? Not if you want to be. I mean, obviously, you're on there to invest. I wish I could be like this on the show all day. I'm out. Next. I'm out. Next. I'm out. So they were like, yeah, you're going to be on the show, and we will have some great opportunities for you. But, uh, you know, you have to spend your own money. I was like, why would I have to spend my own money? What the hell is wrong with you guys? Um. And, um, and then all of a sudden I said, you know what? I'm already, it's 08. Um, I got 10 clothing brands, eight of them are dead because when people can't pay their mortgage, last thing they're doing is buying another pair of jeans and t-shirts. They'll just wear them 10 more times. I'm only getting yep. pitched clothing lines. And when I deal with a big department store, I want to, I want to, I want to upsell them. I want to say, I'm not going to take areas of real estate and clothing. I have electronics. I have plates. I have this and that, another, another company. So I'm going to go on your show. Corklin back says, okay. I said, but I'm doing another show. Uh, two girls are going to open a clothing store in New York that I represent. I represent the family. They said, um, um, what kind of show? I said, cable show. I'm being there three separate times, three minutes a piece total as their mentor. Nine minutes total, excuse me. Three separate times, three minutes a piece. They said, can't do any other show but ours. I said, I have to pass. I appreciate the opportunity. Goodbye. Get a call a week later from a, a book agent, not even my agent, said, I heard you gave up a Mark Burnett show on ABC, but three girls that never nobody will ever hear are called the Kardashians. What is wrong with you? And I said, I'm a man of my word. He said, you're an idiot. Two days later, Chloe Kardashian calls me and says, um, we don't, the producer, not even Chloe, says, we don't think you're right for our show. Um, we're not trying to target that market. Um, we don't want you on the show no more. And um, one hour after that, Mark Burnett calls and said, so I heard you're unemployed. And um, Chloe Kardashian found out that I was going to turn down the show because I was representing the girls. And she said she would never get in my way. And I go over there and do this pilot for Shark Tank that I think would never, ever make it ever. And now we're about to shoot our 13th season. <laughs> so it's crazy. What a story. Damon, at the time, you're obviously, you know, you're told that you're going to be investing your own money. Were you were you already doing that? Were you in a because I know early on in the podcast you had talked about how you know 
your at least your outlook is you should go from starting your own business or making your own money to starting to invest in other things so that your money works for you and not the other way around. Were you already doing that? And when did you start investing in other companies uh, in your career? Um, yeah, well, I was already doing that. And we started doing that. My partners and I primarily, like I said, I had 10 clothing brands. So um, we started a, probably right around when I was around 31. We acquired brands and invested in brands such as um, Willie Esco, Drunken Monkey, Kooji, Married to the Mob, Heatherette and various other brands in our portfolio, Etonic, um, Crown Holder, and some other brands. So we were already doing that. We weren't diversifying outside of the area, but we were diversifying um, within uh, men, Young Men's Apparel, but we had two or three uh, young ladies' brands. Hmm. I know I know. on the show you talk a lot about you know your access to distribution and uh, supply chain, things of that nature. You know, I'm really curious about founders and their skill sets uh, when they're starting, but also throughout the course of their careers. What 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 do you consider the skills that Damon John has built? You know, in his business career, right? If you were to go start a furniture company tomorrow, you know, what are the skills that you know were transferable from what you did with Fubu and all those other clothing brands to what you can do? you know, down the line or perhaps advice you could give to other founders in different areas? Yeah, seeking talent, good management, and uh, seeking out talent and giving um, people who traditionally have not gotten a shot, give them a shot, and or people who are highly leveled and highly skilled, convincing them that we can collectively do this and rewarding them. Um, that's a skill. My other skill is knowing that I am not detail orientated at all, and I need people to operate these areas and my general weaknesses. Um, the next one is um, of a massive, massive uh, Rolodex of um, people who are either influential, people who are manufacturers, or people who are in finance, people who are in licensing. Um, my other skill set is knowing the big picture, and another skill set is knowing when to take it behind the barn and shoot it because it's done and move on. Lick my wounds, not care about the loss and not care about the embarrassment. Be honest with everybody and treat it like a grenade that you, you just got handed with the pin out of it. Just hot potato, take that, take that shit somewhere else and move on. Mm -hmm. Obviously when a lot of people think of Damon John, they obviously have seen you on shark tanks so or they think of you as like the shark on TV. And um, I guess what's something that people might not know about, uh, the show or just like your involvement with the show in general, like behind the scenes, perhaps? Well, I mean, a lot of people don't know that um, between the pitches, I am, um, you know, I take the rest of the sharks behind the, the curtain and I draw a board and I show them what actually happened and transpired and I educate them on how they could be better sharks and better individuals. I'm the, I'm the guru of the show. I'm the teacher. Uh, so a lot of people don't know that aspect about it. But um, other than that, uh, all joking aside, uh, I think a lot of people don't know. And uh, let me break down the show for us. Um, we really don't know anything about those people. We don't get a piece of paper on those people because it would take all the fun out of the show, right? I would be able to Google or leverage or, you know, understand. I wouldn't need to ask you your distribution. It would be right there online, right? Know nothing about them. The right. pitches are average an hour long. It could go as long as two and a half hours. There's 16 cameras shooting each pitch. That's 16 hours of footage that they mark. To make sure that they they accurately display what had transpired. You only see eight minutes of it. It takes us anywhere from um, 
you know, one month to nine months to close the deals. So we'll close about 80% of the deals. That's the reality of the show. Um, what the behind, those are the behind the scenes things that you don't see that it takes the show. It takes us an average of uh, one month to shoot the show, but it takes us six months to promote it and eight months to probably deal with all the vetting. And it takes a lot of massive time, uh, you know, and it's a great, it's a great thing about that. Um, the things you don't see, we're all close. All the sharks, we're very close. We've been now doing this 13 years. I'll, we've seen each other get married and divorced. Our kids have grown up with each other. We've seen certain ones fight cancer and do so many different things. So we are extremely, extremely close. And we respect and value each other, even though we can disagree on the fundamentals of business. Those fights are absolutely real that we have, you know, because uh, it's uh, we, we both have egos. We both feel that we know the best for that entrepreneur. And you're getting in the way of my money. So mm -hmm. those are a lot of different aspects of the show that that uh, people, you know, may not know or or may know. And me, uh, you know, Damon John is I, I have learned and I've grown over the course of my time mm -hmm. as a shark. I first got on there because I was looking at opportunities that I may potentially get to diversify my portfolio. I realized I have a bigger responsibility after the show had 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 started to hit so many families and so many kids that as a person or a minority, a person of color, I realized that. I happen to be the only African-American that this level of success on TV that has nothing to do with music, sports or politics and uh, and entertainment. And uh, I probably am the person that most people need to see because if my dumbass can make it, anybody can. And you don't need to think that you have to have a talent. You don't need to think that you have to look good. You can sing, you can dance or you can play sports. And I think that that's a bigger issue because. When you look at that carpet on, on, you know, on Shark Tank, that carpet doesn't care about your race, your color, your creed, your sexual preference, your gender. It just needs to know, are you ready to succeed? And that's what I love about the show and what, how it has changed Damon John uh, than the 13, you know, than the person 13 years ago that were looking for to, you know, leverage their opportunities and diversify their portfolio for financial gains only. Damon, one of the things that I think is fantastic about the show, and I remember uh, Kevin O'Leary was actually on Clubhouse a few weeks ago and I uh, had the chance to you know, tell him and ask him about it as well, is how great of an impact the show has had, perhaps globally, right? At least in the United States, but perhaps globally. It has essentially brought entrepreneurship and investing to the forefront, right? Where, you know, you talk about how there was no, and still sometimes isn't, financial literacy courses in high school, college, grad school even. Unless you study finance, maybe that's when you understand some of those things. I mean, I went to law school. I've worked in business, same with Pat. And we're still learning about some of these things while we're on the job, right? But I think what Shark, what Shark Tank's been able to do is bring those things to the forefront, right? Talk about things like revenue and profit and distribution and scale and team building and experience, et cetera. Things that nobody had ever talked or thought about before. And it gave people this inspiration that they can go and do those same things that none of us are any special, right? Yes, there are per certain people that have been able to succeed and now are in a special place. But when they started, they weren't special. I guess with that said, what has been one of the most impactful stories for you personally? Whether it was a founder that came on the show and you invested in them, whether it was somebody you didn't invest in, whether it was somebody that had got no investment at all, what was something that had the biggest impact on you or has had the biggest impact on you through this show? Well, you know, I have to agree with you and I have to disagree with you in the opening. And I'm only tell you why, because all that information has been out there forever. But you know where it was at? 
It was in the Wall Street Journal. It was on CNBC. It was on places that you and I and many people didn't watch or we didn't think we belong because somehow you don't see startups on those places, right? You see a person who has a market cap of uh, $4 billion having the conversation. So I think what you're saying is so accurate because you weren't able to know what millionaires and billionaires are going to ask you in a room when they're trying to invest in you. And you definitely did not know the word royalty or margins, but now a 12-year-old can articulate that quite well and how to break down a company. But more importantly, I think one thing you did say was the startups, because the difference of when you see CNBC and a lot of these companies are you're watching Shark Tank year after year, and that person was sleeping in their car a year prior to this. Now they're on Shark Tank, and the year after, that person is a millionaire, and you go to yourself... I thought the Wizard of Oz uh, was never going to let me pass. And the gate, the, the curtain has been pulled back on the Wizard of Oz. And this is reality, right? So if I have to break down the couple of ones that I think have inspired me the most, I would think about three. One would be a little young man named Moe's Bowes that I ended up mentoring. And I didn't give him any money, but a brilliant young man who has grown and he has shown a lot of people of color and a lot of other people that... You know, this little man, this little kid with 10 years old had the biggest heart. Now he's 19 and doing quite well. So I think that inspired people for various different reasons. Um, number two would be a guy who did get turned down by the Sharks. He said he was asking for too much capital at the time. And um, he uh, he went out and uh, realized that, you know, even if he he you know was a shark, that he would have never made that investment. But we told him no. And he would go off and sell his company ring. For $1.2 billion to Amazon. Yeah. So it shows that the sharks don't know everything. We can only tell you what is a good investment for us or where we see we add value, but it shows that you can hear no and you can go out and sell for $1.2 billion and change a lot of technology in the world, right? And then number three is going to be my favorite. Uh, two guys come on with a product that I said I was never going to invest in. It was a sock company because I already told you I have 10 companies and eight of them are dead. But they showed that you can take a sock or any product and you can put a twist on it. And that today people care not only about what they buy from you, but what the hell are you doing for somebody else? And instead of having to worry about solely relying on um advertising when Bombas socks sells a pair of socks they give a pair where the homeless and what does that do that makes a kid or a person every time they're on zoom or at the water cooler or at the dinner table say let me tell you something i help so many different organizations every year how do you do that you're barely making any money i know but every time i bought this i help clean up the ocean every time i bought this i help give a pair away uh, of socks away to homeless and every time i did this i help stop human trafficking and it it shows that you can take something and put a twist on it. And why do I say that? Well, because they're the number one product ever invested in in Shark Tank history. So a lot of people want to come up with new air brakes for the new space shuttle or new heart valves. No, the number one product that ever was invested in is a sock in Shark Tank history. The number two product, it's a stupid-ass sponge called the Scrub Daddy. Daddy. It's a sock and a sponge. <laughs> I don't want people out here, don't stop overthinking these things. We already talked about one of the top companies in the world. It's a bubbly brown drink with syrup in it. That's it. Yep. Damon, I know I know. there's a lot of good stuff. And the one thing I do want to wind down with, and it's a lot more personal, is a few years ago, I think it was a few years ago, uh, it was announced that you were diagnosed with cancer and 
you know, it, it was definitely one of those things that I, I read about and I was like, I, I was so, uh, I was so devastated by it because you just never want to hear those things. You know, how did that change your life? And how have you been able to build from that point on since then? Well, thank you for your concern. And it was questionable if I was going to say it, to tell anybody about it at the time that it happened, because obviously I had to respect the privacy of my family and uh, what was going on. But I thought that there was a bigger story to tell. Um, and I think the, the reason why there's a big story to tell is I, I had that. So basically, the story goes that I went and got an executive physical and they told me to take a little nodule off my thyroid, a little bump, but they didn't know necessarily what it was. But the way the imaging was going, it was complicated to see what it was. The one hour surgery of removing that little nodule on my thyroid became two hours, three and a half hours of removing a golf ball size of stage two cancer from my body that I didn't know I had. And it was slowly moving to my lymph nodes. Now, I've got to tell you, I'm cancer free. And I got to tell you something about it, though. What I learned there was as much as all the stuff we're talking about. Because entrepreneurs are such servants and serve others, we never talk about ourselves and we often overlook ourselves and put ourselves last. And all the all the aspects of what we talk about doesn't mean anything if you can't get it. We all have this, right? Whether it's ourselves or whether it's our sister, our brother, our hard-headed father, hard-headed mother, especially when we our families come from countries that a lot of things are not necessarily there. They ignore things. And I realized that I caught that thing in my body because my friend made me go and get an executive physical. And it's 70% of the people... 70% of the time, if you catch something ahead of time, you can beat it. So what that made me do is say that I think there's a bigger picture to tell people to urge their family members to go get that colonoscopy, endoscopy, pap smear, mammogram, whatever it is, because we don't talk about that on Shark Tank. Um, and it's a very critical part of success. So uh, thank you uh, for, for, for bringing it up. And I think that I hope if just one person listens to what we're talking about today, and they can go and they go and catch something early. Then I think we did our job. Absolutely, yep. absolutely. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you're in good health now. And uh, I know you got to run, but this has been an incredible, incredible conversation. Uh, we can't thank you enough for hanging out with us and sharing your story with us and and wisdom and all the best to you. Hopefully, we can meet in person uh, one day once this whole COVID thing is is gone. And uh, you know, all the, all the best. All right, guys. Well, I appreciate you and thank you for what you're doing for people and bringing you the further education to this challenging world but yet very rewarding world of entrepreneurship and uh and everything else thank you Jim. yes sir and thank you for David. your vulnerability and sharing not only the business side but really who you are because i think that that's the goal that pat and i have with this show is uncovering the person behind the businesses because the businesses are something that's secondary i think you know if you have a great human being behind anything they could create one two three dozens of businesses so thank you for being that inspiration and best of luck with everything you, you're doing you got it, brother. Thank you, guys. Peace. Thank you.